I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. The fighting in Ukraine is moving into a second month, with invading Russian forces largely held in check. But relentless shelling continues to devastate the country. We'll have reports from Holly Williams in Ukraine and national security correspondent David Martin in Washington. Broad economic sanctions were among the West's first responses to the invasion, including those aimed at the so-called Russian oligarchs, billionaire businessmen, many of them close to Vladimir Putin, who saw their assets frozen around the world. So just who are these mysterious oligarchs? Seth Doan will be talking with one of them. If you put your ATM card in the ATM... No, my card is blocked, you know, so I could not uh, get uh, any money. Mikhail Friedman made billions in Russia, and now the West is making him pay for it. It's so-called collateral damage, right? You are collateral damage? Yeah, because you know what? Who cares about this greedy oligarchs? Ahead on Sunday morning, we get the rare chance to speak with a sanctioned Russian oligarch. Of course, it's Oscar Sunday, so we're going to the movies. Perhaps tonight's biggest prize is the Oscar for Best Picture. Tracy Smith this morning sits down with some of the stars, along with the legendary director of one of the best, best pictures ever. I'm just a second-rate director. Come on. But I'm a first-rate, second-rate director. <laughs> okay, that's just like that now. Hold it. Fifty years ago, that second-rate director made a movie that still stands as one of the greatest ever. I'm going to make him an offer again with you. So we can walk past the camera. Let's just go. Francis Ford Coppola. You slow down. You see he's directing this. <laughs> and the story behind The Godfather, coming up on Sunday morning. They're breaking records on the track and in the pool and making waves in the culture wars. Lee Cowan will look at the complex debate surrounding transgender athletes. You don't have to be a swimmer to know the name Leah Thomas, a trans woman athlete at the center of an emotional debate. When it comes to women, they're just supposed to say, this transgender person is really bullied, so please make way for a transgender athlete. The hatred and vitriol that we are seeing in the world is just, it's obscene and it's unacceptable. Balancing inclusion and fairness in sports. Is it even possible? That question, later on Sunday morning. Christine Johnson takes in an exhibit curated by the guards at Baltimore's Museum of Art. Historian Douglas Brinkley has an appreciation of the life and times of former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. David Pogue celebrates the genius of silent movie great Buster Keaton. Faith Saley has a jewel of a story about a world-class collection of gems. Plus, critic David Edelstein on the Oscars, humor from Jim Gaffigan, and more on this Sunday morning for the 27th of March, 2022. We'll be right back.
Spring weather can change by the minute. So be prepared for anything with Eric Fisher and the WBZ Storm Watch weather team. And then this rain will start to roll in, alerting you first to the next big change. That will arrive late morning into the early afternoon. Tracking severe weather to keep you safe. Heavy rain and strong winds, that will be the main threat. Timing the impacts so you can plan ahead. Most of us dealing with the rain by 10 o'clock. Accurate, experienced, preparing you for what's next. Just something we'll have to watch for. The Storm Watch weather team on WBZ News. To grow a business in the life sciences industry, your business needs a deep talent pool of scientists and physicists. Your people need high quality of life and great schools. There's a place that has it all, and it's just outside of New York City. With more biochemists and biophysicists than any other state, great neighborhoods, and the number one ranked schools in the country, Middlesex County, New Jersey is a community dedicated to life science business. Go to discovermiddlesex.com biz. Five stars all rise for to kill. Deadliest so Five stars all rise for to kill a mockingbird. Unmissable and unforgettable. A mockingbird for our moment. Beautiful, elegiac, satisfying, even exhilarating. A New York Times critic's pick. Mockingbird is now the most successful American play in Broadway history. All rise for Aaron Sorkin's great play. Richard Thomas is Atticus Finch in Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Playing the Citizens Bank Opera House April 5th through 17th. Tickets at LexisBroadwayInBoston.com. Your timing couldn't be better. New England's biggest and best home shows are back. Get excited. Get inspired. Hundreds of exhibitors waiting to talk directly to you about your home improvement and decorating projects at the all-new Home and Golf Show at the Royal Plaza in Marlboro on April 1st to 3rd. It's your chance to demo all the latest equipment. They're all right there at the all-new Home and Golf Show at the Royal Plaza in Marlboro on April 1st to 3rd. Go to NewEnglandHomeShows.com for all the details. America's been thunderstruck by the all-new 2022 Mitsubishi Outlander. Drive one today for $2.99 per month with inventory arriving daily. Plus the confidence of an industry-leading 10-year warranty. The spring sales event only at your greater Boston Providence Mitsubishi retailers. Get thunderstruck. We begin with the latest from Ukraine. Here is correspondent Holly Williams. This past week, Ukraine marked a month since Russia began its brutal invasion. Besieging and decimating cities. Nowhere and nobody is safe from Russian strikes and shelling. Ukrainian officials say Chernihiv in the north is now surrounded by Russian forces. And yesterday, missile strikes hit the city of Lviv, close to the Polish border, previously seen by some as a safe haven. In the city of Jitomir, we found Serhi Melnik picking through what's left of his house. He spent 12 years building it for his family, he told us. But then his neighborhood was hit by Russian airstrikes earlier this month, killing four. One of them was Serhi's daughter, Katya, who's left behind a one-year-old baby girl. Sir, he told us he blames Vladimir Putin and wants to butcher him like a goat. Just before returning to the U.S. from Poland, President Biden condemned the Russian leader. For God's sake, this man cannot remain powerful. 
On the ground, Putin's forces appear largely stymied in the face of Ukrainian counterattacks. One, two, three, four Russian tanks taken out. Between 7 and 15,000 Russian soldiers have been killed, according to a NATO official. Russia even suggested on Friday it may now have more limited goals, focused on Ukraine's far east. Ukraine's resistance is fueled by tens of thousands of volunteers who are still signing up to fight. At this military base, they get only around a week's basic training before heading to the front line. Uh, hand grenades. Wow. They showed us their armory, now boosted by supplies from NATO countries. In the shattered city of Kharkiv this past week, a cellist played in the rubble. In a country of breathtaking courage and resilience. Correspondent Holly Williams. Despite some 150,000 troops and superior firepower, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has stalled. Our David Martin remembers an earlier failed Russian invasion and finds some striking parallels. And then we'll look at a vital tool nations of the West are using to fight Russian disinformation. Long before Russia invaded Ukraine, Long before you ever heard of Vladimir Putin, Russia invaded Afghanistan. By all accounts, the Soviet takeover was meticulously planned and skillfully executed. It was Christmas of 1979, and Michael Vickers was working for the CIA. Nobody gave the Afghans a chance in uh, 1979. Russia, back then it was still the Soviet Union, went in to install a puppet regime. Ten years later, the last Soviet tank rumbled out of Afghanistan, defeated by Afghan rebels armed by a secret CIA operation run by Vickers. What was the only time the Red Army had been defeated in its history? It's only a month into Putin's invasion of Ukraine, and already what was supposed to be a cakewalk has turned into a bloody slop. Putin's in a probably even a tougher box than the Soviets were then. His economy is being destroyed. You have to look at this and see Russian power being destroyed, you know, both militarily and economically, and its international position. You know, how long are we going to let this go on? Well, how long? The Soviets are in Afghanistan for 10 years. Is that the kind of time frame we're looking at for Ukraine? I think the time frame is shorter, but I, I don't see how Russia takes the pain over a sustained period of time. The Kremlin sent 100,000 troops into Afghanistan, 150,000 into Ukraine. The Soviet army, bad as it performed in a lot of cases in Afghanistan in the 80s, did a lot better than the Russians are doing in Ukraine. Putin has been unable to achieve his initial goal of seizing the capital of Kiev and overthrowing the Zelensky government though he is expected to regroup and try again. When people talk about Putin doubling down, what can he double down with? He's really doubled down on this population destruction strategy, the scorched earth strategy. I mean, that's really all he's got left. If Putin succeeds in seizing Kiev and installing a puppet regime, what happens next? Well, I don't think a puppet regime could survive at all. The Russian army really can't pacify the country. The population hates them. The parallels between 
wars in Afghanistan and Ukraine are striking, with one glaring difference. 1985, when the Red Army was mired in Afghanistan, the man at the top in the Kremlin was the reform-minded Mikhail Gorbachev. He said, all right, we're going to try to win this war one last time. Uh, I'll give you more troops, but you got a year or two to win it. Gorbachev, in effect, doubled down. He did double down. And then by early 86, he started looking for an exit. In the months and years after, the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union collapsed. Could Ukraine bring about the collapse of Putin's Russia? I think for the first time in 22 years, his, his continued rule is more of a question mark. Even if he survives, the Russian state is likely to be severely weakened. An invasion intended to restore the Russian empire. So now what is he doing when you're losing for the first time? You know, if you had won smaller victories, now you're losing big. What do you do? This is Christina Ruffini. In the fight against disinformation, this is the front line. In Prague, writers, producers, and social media hosts for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, are battling Kremlin propaganda. Our role is to provide surrogate journalism, essentially local journalism, in countries where freedom of press is under assault. Jamie Fly is the president of RFP, which operates in 27 languages and 23 countries. Including Russia. These are countries where the message is decided every day in a government office about what people should see, what they should hear, what they should be told. What is it like covering this conflict as a Russian? Uh, there is no easy way to talk about it. Simya Sukolyanskaya is an anchor for RFE's Russian language network, Tarzhenia Rasi Ukraine. I don't want to push anyone, and I think that people should come to conclusions themselves. They need to have the options, and that's uh, the biggest problem uh, with media in Russia. There are no other options. Those other options disappeared earlier this month when Russian President Vladimir Putin imposed a restrictive new media law, forcing almost all independent outlets to shut down. We were warned that unless we started to censor our content about the war in Ukraine, that we would be blocked. We refused to censor, and so our websites are now blocked inside Russia. And that's where Patrick Fuller comes in. And part of the Kepinos game where um, he tries to anticipate what they're going to do and you react. He's the head of digital strategies, helping keep RFE and its consumers one step ahead of the censors. So is it kind of a race against time to stay ahead of whatever measure they're implementing? They will block our site, then they might block the copy of our site, but then we just create another copy of our site, and then another copy. They want them all. You know, that's that's right. The strategy seems to be working. Since the war began, RFE says its page views from inside Russia are up 51%. Getting past Russian censors is familiar territory to RFE. It started in the 1950s as a Cold War counter-propaganda machine. Piercing the Iron Curtain with shortwave radio broadcasts. Radio Free Europe needs and deserves our generous help. It claimed to be entirely funded by public donations, but that wasn't true. 
as CBS's Mike Wallace reported in 1967. Radio Free Europe needs your support. If you responded to the many appeals for Radio Free Europe, then you became part of the CIA cover. CIA involvement ended in 1971, and RFE became an independent agency, openly funded by Congress. Still, since the fall of the Soviet Union, the organization has seen its relevance questioned and its funding slashed, even as Moscow has retooled its messaging machine for the digital age. It is harder to reach audiences now. State propaganda today is much more sophisticated. We have to compete more and have to be more relevant and uh, nimble than we did during the Cold War to adapt to new audience trends. Far from a Cold War relic, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty says its mission is now more relevant than ever. Earlier this month, Congress increased the agency's budget 15%. Information, honest, truthful, objective reporting will play a huge role eventually in helping bring about change inside of Russia. Everyone in this building subscribes to that notion, otherwise they wouldn't be working for it if you're afraid of it. Valencia and Florida by GL Homes, the only way of premier living for 55 plus. Live your best life in five gorgeous Florida locations. Fun in the sun. Joyous title number with a 103 degree fever. All the same. 
seven decades on, singing in the rain remains as vivid a depiction as any of the delirious bliss of falling in love. with us about the art rather than asking us what the bathroom is. It's like we are kind of the shadows of the museum. Ku hopes that's about to change thanks to an exhibit opening today. The show, called Guarding the Art, was organized not by the museum's curators, but its very own security guards. First I was like, what? <laughs> us? when you're approached to say, we want you to help curate this exhibit, did you think to yourself, I'm not qualified to do that? Right. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. Because there's a clear separation of every other department in the museum versus security. So we were very intimidated at, at first. But look where we are at now. <laughs> of course, getting to where they are now took months of preparation. The team oversaw every detail along the way, from the wall color to the works of art. Each participant selected pieces from the museum's permanent collection that spoke to them personally. Black over reds. Ku chose paintings by Philip Gustin and Mark Rothko. It kind of 
affects you in a really deep emotional way, and I wanted to see how other visitors would react to that. So now that it's up on the wall, this is still the one that you wanted up here. No regrets, right? No regrets. No regrets. I'm very proud of this piece, as if I did it myself. Archibald Frederick selected a more contemporary piece, Micheline Thomas's Resist Number no. 2, a collage of racial protests. There's so much going on in the world, in this country, as far as all the turmoil and social injustice, that this is speaking to everything that I wanted to say. Guards spend more time with the art than anyone in the museum. They're around it day and night, looking at it, observing it. Board of Trustee member Amy Elias came up with the idea for the exhibit, along with the museum's head curator, Asman Ayin. It's a simple idea, but it's asking profound questions. Who is art for? What are museums for? Who gets to talk about art? This show overall is telegraphing to the public. Art is for everyone. A reminder to museum goers everywhere that if you have questions about art, look no further than the person standing next to it. For other visitors who come here, now that we've, we've done this, they will see us totally in a different light. You're no longer a shadow? No. <laughs>
all of these measures will significantly harm Putin's ability to finance his war. To punish Russian President Vladimir Putin for invading Ukraine, the U.S. and its allies are foregoing military intervention and using the financial weapon of sanctions aimed at both the state and on individuals deemed close to Putin. Flashy assets are being seized and bank accounts frozen. Do you put your ATM card in the ATM? No, my card is blocked, you know, so I could not uh, get uh, any money. Friedman made his billions in banking and retail, but now lives in London, is on the UK and EU sanction lists. I wouldn't expect you to tell me on camera, but I would think that a billionaire must have access to money. No. No. Somewhere. There must be a, there must be an account, there must be. But, but it's not. <laughs> Seems hard to believe. But that's why I'm here. <laughs> that's why I'm here, because I would like to explain sanction against us, unfair, useless, what? What did we do wrong? Except we do business in Russia. Can't a wealthy Russian businessman close to Putin have some impact? So first of all, we should understand that the power distance between Mr. Putin and everybody around him is huge. Even assuming that I want to deliver any messages, I don't have any, any channels to do that. You can't make billions in Russia without being close to the Kremlin. Yeah, that's, that's very typical and uh, unappropriate myth. Majority of Russian private business people do not have any personal ties with Mr. Putin. From his earliest days of political power, Putin has been using corruption as a tool to enrich himself and expand his power. Everyone swims in that water. Author Tom Burgess wrote Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. He says the West has been gorging on Russian money, whether in property, this is Friedman's $85 billion London mansion, now a frozen asset, or sports teams. Chelsea Football Club, one of the world's most valuable franchises, is owned by sanctioned oligarch Roman Abramovich. How do you know this is dirty money that's being blocked by these sanctions? Dirty money is quite a hard thing to define. You could make the argument that anyone who has made and retained an enormous fortune in a dictatorship we know to be profoundly corrupt, then that person is to some greater or lesser extent complicit in that regime's power. Still, to show us that his money is clean, Friedman sent us this audit by Ernst & Young, which he commissioned. He's a man straddling different worlds. He's Russian and Jewish, and was born and raised in what is now Ukraine, then part of the Soviet Union. I've been always in contact with the Ukrainian authority, including President Zelensky. What do you think of President Zelensky? I think he's the president of independence country, and he is a very brave and strong person, as far as I understand. In a letter to employees before he was sanctioned, Friedman wrote, war can never be the answer. He's one of the few oligarchs to speak out against the invasion of Ukraine. You've said you're against the war. I'm against the war. Very but clearly. you can't criticize Putin. I think that right now, in climate, Russia is not very uh, tolerant with regards to that. Mr. Putin recently made a very clear speech regarding traitors, you know, kind of enemies from the state. No, not no predatory. Do you think he was talking about you? I don't know. I I'm definitely do not believe that I'm an enemy of the state. Do you think you're a traitor in Putin's view? I hope not, but <laughs> looks like. What does that mean for you? It's a very difficult situation by any uh, dimension. In all of the people suffering in this war, many do not have a lot of sympathy for Russian billionaires. You're right. And I understand uh, that's 
attitude, Friedman acknowledges the effectiveness of the wider sanctions that have crippled Russia's economy, but claims he's collateral damage. What about presumption of innocence, things like that? That's just issuing of unknown bureaucrats who decided that I am guilty by definition because I'm Russian. Just to feed public demand to punish Friedman says, where's the due process in this? Friedman has a point. There are civil servants and politicians writing names on lists. What you really want is a criminal process, right? If someone is guilty of corruption, you, you can prosecute them for that. The danger with sanctions is that they start to create this system outside the rule of law where people are targeted with very little due process, yeah. CBS News, 60 minutes, tonight on CBS. Visit your New England Acura dealer for attractive offers on the MDX. Receiving safe, effective cancer care in a timely manner is crucial. With cancer, it matters when you start. And where you start. At Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. We find the nuances that make your cancer unique. And personalize a treatment plan to target them. I walk in every day knowing that this is the best place for my patients to be. Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. Lucas in a women's bathing suit. I still wear the women's suit. 
because I haven't had any sort of surgery. I would like to at some point. The women's suit hides, the men's suit can't. Until last year, Lucas had been competing on Oberlin's women's team. This past November, he began a regimen of testosterone therapy as part of his transitioning to a man. I was a tomboy from the moment I could walk. I always felt a little bit lost, a little bit like I didn't fit in. He says he's happier now than he's ever been. This is the first season that you've been competing as a man. How's it feel so far? Feels good. Lucas's transition has been supported by his coaches and by his teammates at Oberlin. But that kind of acceptance isn't enjoyed by all transgender athletes, especially trans women. 22-year-old Leah Thomas is arguably one of the most controversial and yet accomplished collegiate trans swimmers competing today. For three years, she swam on the University of Pennsylvania's men's team, but after taking some time off, returned this season to swim with the women. And she has become a phenom. Nobody will touch Leah Thomas in a sport often defined by just fractions of a second. Leah Thomas is sometimes so far ahead she's seen waiting for her competitors to catch up. NCAA rules require trans women athletes to take testosterone suppression therapy for one year before competing. Leah Thomas has been on it for twice that long. And while her times have slowed since she was swimming as a man, her winning streak has sparked a firestorm over just how to balance fairness and inclusion. That is a new Ivy League league record. In many sports, men are, you know, 10 or 20% better on average. And if you look at the most elite performers, men are far, far ahead of what women are able to do. And that's where the fairness question comes in. Absolutely. Dr. Michael Joyner is a physiologist who researches human athletic performance at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. After studying Leah Thomas's times from male to female, he says statistically she is an outlier. The emerging evidence is that there are legacy effects of testosterone, especially people who've been through puberty as males and had exposure to testosterone for prolonged periods of time. He expects that Leah's testosterone suppressants have indeed lowered her hormone levels down to those of cisgender women. Those are women whose gender identities match the sex they were assigned at birth. But Joyner says that hormone therapy can't reverse everything. Height's probably not reversible, hand size, foot size. Some of the issues related to muscle mass, lung size, and other things probably are never going to revert completely, if at all. Trans women will maintain advantages, but are those advantages large enough to preclude meaningful competition? Not clear at all. Joyner Harper is a visiting fellow studying transgender athletic performance at Loughborough University in England. She wonders if the advantages that trans women may have may also come with some disadvantages. But bigger bodies of trans women are now being powered by reduced muscle mass, reduced aerobic capacity. That can lead to disadvantages in things like quickness, recovery, endurance, etc. Her published studies are among the few that have been done on trans athletes, a field that she got interested in as a competitive runner when she began her own transition from slower and that's the difference between serious male distance runners and serious female distance runners and as a scientist I was intrigued. She's now in the process of conducting a more long-term study of trans athletes. Nobody's really done that yet on this scale. On any scale. That's in part because transgender people only make up an estimated one percent of the population 
elite trans athletes are only a tiny fraction of that. That said, many in competitive swimming say we don't need exhaustive studies to decipher what they say is plainly evident. To have somebody competing who does have this unfair advantage, even if they don't win, it still corrupts the field. Nancy Hogshead Maycorn won three gold medals at the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. They think that women should just move over and say, here you go, you take these spots. She now heads Champion Women, an advocacy group for women's equality in athletics. Leah Thomas has already greatly impacted women's sports. When Leah's in the finals, it means another woman doesn't make it into the finals. You're not against trans athletes. You're just against trans women competing in a women's category. Correct. When it comes to competitive sports is where, where I would uh, draw the line. I do think that transgender people have a really hard time in society, and I want that to be easier. But we can't ask women to give up what we've worked so hard for so that, so that transgender women are able to compete. That argument has already forced some changes. This year, mid-season, the NCAA announced that it was abandoning its rules that have allowed trans athletes to compete since 2011. It will now, in the future, leave it up to the governing bodies of each sport to come up with their own rules. At the legislative level, laws that ban trans women and girls from participating in sports are getting more and more common. 22 states have introduced bills just like that this year alone. These bills are devastating. They are telling trans kids they do not belong, even the ones who don't want to play sports, because it says, hey, you don't belong in one of the primary activities that children partake in. Skyler Bailey was the first openly trans man in Division I swimming. He's now an advocate for transgender inclusion. Is there any middle ground in this debate? I don't think that there is space to say, yes, I you know, affirm your identity, but I don't in sport. You can't divide me in half and have my transness and my masculinity show up here and not over here. All season, he's been cheering Leah Thomas on. He worries if she's excluded from sports, just where does it stop? At what point is a woman too tall or her hands too big? At what point is a woman not woman enough? Does she go in with an advantage? I think biodiversity exists everywhere, and the reality is people win and lose all the time, and nobody considers that unfair until it is a marginalized person, specifically a black or brown woman and or a trans woman. And you can see and feel the tension in this building. All eyes were on Leah Thomas recently at the NCAA National Finals, where she didn't break any records, but she did become the first known transgender athlete to win a Division I championship. While some celebrated, others angry. Clearly the debate is far from over. As for Lucas Draper, he's really not sure what the answer is. But a willingness, he says, to dive into the debate is at least a start at finding a solution. People who identify as transgender are very much in the minority. People just don't understand where people like me are coming from. So where are you coming from? I just want to be me. And me isn't my private thoughts. That's who I am inside. Big news, people. Introducing Simply Safe's new wireless outdoor security camera. It works with Simply Safe's already award-winning system. It's like adding an extra layer of home protection. Get it? Extra layer. All this is backed by 24/7 professional monitoring. A third layer.
could go on all day. Award-winning home security just got better. Simply safe. Twelve weeks ago, bladder leaks would have held me back. Living without pads, liners, and leak-proof underwear was just a dream. But now, Innovo eliminates bladder leaks in just 12 weeks. Innovo stops leaks at the source by strengthening your pelvic floor. It delivers 180 perfect kegels in just 30 minutes. So leaks don't stand a chance. In just 12 weeks or less, 87% of women were leak-free. Now we can do what we love without worrying. Even this. Eliminate leaks in 12 weeks. Get started at myanovo.com. We've been watching history unfold.
She refused to tolerate Saddam Hussein's ethnic cleansing of Kurdish villages and Slobodan Milosevic's genocide in Bosnia. As we watch the Ukrainian war unfold, let's keep Madam Secretary in our minds and hearts. For Albright's motto is the one that President Zelensky is now nobly defending. Never take democracy for granted.
1937, at the peak of his success, Keaton made what he later called the worst mistake of his life. He joined the movie-making machine known as MGM Studios. His improvisational working habits, his creative freedom, and his independent film career were over. And it really, I think, just, just broke him as a performer and as a person. His marriage was also falling apart separately from that. He was starting to drink too much. By 1933, alcoholic and miserable, he had lost his marriage, his home, and even his MGM job. But I think that it's often focused on a lot, that he had this sort of giant decline. Keaton Talmadge is a professional voice actor and Buster's great-granddaughter. The irony isn't lost on me. My great-grandfather made a living being silent, and I make a living talking <laughs> all the time. She points out that Buster's life had a third act. People forget that there was a definite uphill after that, where he contributed to some great comedic television. We got to do commercials and just be on set. He was in a very happy, wonderful marriage. But all you do is this. This 1965 documentary captured some rare footage of Keaton off-camera, smiling, in fact. <laughs> Buster Keaton died at age 70 of lung cancer. But his film work never really left. You can see this Keaton stunt echoed in Mission Impossible 6. Or this Keaton gag living on in the movie Inception. Keaton's submarine rescue joke, reprised in You Only Live Twice. And of course, Keaton's house facade gag is one of the most imitated shots in comedy. So he doesn't make it, he falls out of frame, I hope, to some protective net, but then they wrote these gags that got him down the rest of the building. Oh. According to Bill Irwin, the theme of Keaton's life, its ups and its downs, might be resilience. You just hit the ground and get back up again. Keaton did that all his life. He hit the floor, hit the ground, got up again. What do we got? Homicide case, I'll send you the details.
flavor and home with Hatfield Recipe Essentials all-natural ground pork and sausage. You can take a journey of taste and discover exciting, effortless meals you can feel good about. Hatfield, the adventure starts at home. Be prepared for spring changes. The WBZ Stormwatch weather team. Someday, when that day may never come, I'll call upon you to do a service for you. But uh, until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding day. Can you believe it's been 50 years since we first met the Corleone family? 50 years on, The Godfather has taken its place high on the list of classic Hollywood movies. From Tracy Smith, we have an offer you can't refuse. I want you to rest well in a month from now. This Hollywood Big Shot is going to give you what you want. Certainly, they start shooting in a week. I'm going to make an offer to Cameron Field. You probably remember the first time you saw The Godfather. And by now, you can likely recite all the characters' best lines from Clemenza's Cannolis. Leave the gun. Take the cannolis. To Sonny's Bada Bing. You gotta get a post like this. Bada Bing! You brought your brains all over your nice side leave soup. The film came out half a century ago, in March 1972. And when it did, the real mob was at the theater. What is the mob here? Lorraine, the wave The Godfather broke all box office records at the time. Not bad for a film made by a director who, at first, didn't even want to make it. Back then, Francis Ford Coppola was a young filmmaker in business with another young gun, George Lucas. But when Coppola first read Mario Puzo's book, The Godfather, he was underwhelmed. And I thought this is just sort of salacious, uh, trying to make money kind of book, and so I, I disregarded it. When they offered it to me, I turned it down. What changed your mind? George Lucas came to me and says, Francis, we're going broke. They're going to chain the door for lack of paying the rent of our American Zoetrope studio, and you have to do this. We have no other alternative. We need the money. So Coppola took the job, framing it as a dark tale of family succession, and almost immediately began to butt heads with Paramount Studio Brass. I was very young. I was 29. I had no power. They could easily push me around, which they did and tried to. Coppola wanted New York stage actor Al Pacino to play Michael. The studio wanted anyone but, and considered people like Robert Redford, Ryan O'Neill, and Warren Beatty. They also wanted Sir Lawrence Olivier in the title role, but Coppola held out for Marlon Brando. At 46 and in top physical shape, Brando didn't look anything like an aging Don. But with some world-class makeup, he was able to transform himself into a character he knew just how to play. We've known each other many years, but this is the first time you ever came to the council of the The cat was Coppola's idea. It was a studio cat. I just put it in his hand. He would never say, what do you want me to do? I, I joked that, like, if he's in a scene, the friend was in a scene, and a herd of buffalo ran by in character, he would say, oh, look at the buffalo. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. He would make use of anything. Yeah. He was great. He was a genius, no doubt about it. I'm not your And talk about genius. Robert Duvall, as family attorney Tom Hagen, did this scene in two takes. They shot Sonny on the causeway. He's dead. As always, Duval had his lines down cold. Brando, probably 
absolutely didn't. He didn't like to memorize lines? Yeah, well, he claimed that by uh, seeing the lines, he could, he could be fresher. I think it was a form of laziness. I mean, he, in the scene with Pacino out in the backyard, he had a great big sign in a tree. You look up at the tree, and see the lines from off the tree way up, you know. That's wild, but it just looks like he's thinking. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he was able to do that. But even with all that talent, Coppola was in constant fear of losing his job. The studio hated his ideas, and some of the crew, he says, would badmouth him behind his back. This All these people here, and you, look so alone. Well, that's really, this picture is how I felt during the picture. I just, I was not a happy camper, as they say. Coppola wasn't totally alone. He cast two allies as Corleone's siblings, James Kahn as Sonny, and his real-life sister, Talia Shire, as Connie. But they feared the worst. For those first couple of weeks that we were all shooting, Francis's job was in jeopardy. Yeah. I mean, and so my sister shouldn't have been on that set, I will tell you that, because it was very, very uh, tough. But a turning point came after Paramount execs saw the dailies for this scene, where Al Pacino, as Michael, prepares to kill two of his family's mortal enemies. The sound of the train helps build tension that you can feel and see behind Pacino's eyes until the moment he strikes. But for all the shoot-em-up, some at Paramount worried that The Godfather as scripted wasn't violent enough. Coppola says they actually wanted to hire someone to pump up the action in the film, so he choreographed the violent fight scene between Talia Shire's character, Connie, and her no-good husband, Carlo, played by Gianni Russo. And I remember the plates were heavy, so I'd go, and it wouldn't break, and it didn't break, and so my shoes came off. And I kept just running around in the broken things because you don't want it to. But it was, uh, it was intense. Talk about intense. For the scene where Sonny is gunned down at the toll booth, technicians wired everything with small explosive charges called squibs to simulate bullet strikes. On me, I had 147. Around the, the toll booth, there's a size house. Oh, Jesus. Were you scared? A little, but they're always on the set, and I had it in my I swear I wish I was lying. <laughs> the result was a shockingly realistic ballet of brutality that looked lethal and actually could have been. It would blow a hole in your hand if you put your head right here like that. You can't do it many times. You don't right? want to take two. That's a take two. Take two.
So now it once again looks like the vision Francis Ford Coppola went through a kind of hell to make. I would imagine that the wounds have healed by now. I, I don't know the wounds really. I mean, do you have some episode in your life when you were a young woman that hurt you and, uh, and you think about it, does it not hurt you anymore? No, you're right, it still hurts. No, it still because, hurts. Because we are creatures of feelings and, and, and those feelings get linked with something and if you go back and think on that subject, uh, it could break your heart again. Coppola, of course, went on to be recognized as one of the greatest directors of all time and he told us that ultimately, he's glad he took the job. Aren't we all? The Godfather was a new way to show an Italian-American gangster film with a different, a different sensibility. So of course, always the movie you do that is something a little different is rejected in its own time. But years later, it becomes the new. Now then, Godfather becomes the standard to measure against. In other words, art is a ever-blossoming flower that we're all part of. It's a beautiful thing, really. It's easy to think that all money managers are pretty much the same, but Fisher Investments were clearly different. Different how? You sell high-commission investment products, right? Nope. Fisher avoids them. Well, you must earn commissions on trades. Never at Fisher Investments. Okay, then you probably sneak in some hidden and layered fees. No. We structure our fees so we do better when clients do better. That might be why most of our clients come from other money managers. At Fisher Investments, we're clearly different.
my daughter's four, my son's two. I tell you, it's exhausting watching my wife do all that work. Over the years, I've done tons of stand-up comedy complaining about my young children. My three-year-old's now four. I also have a nine-year-old, and an eight-year-old, and a two-year-old, and a one-year-old. I have five kids. I used to have more, but I ate them. I even wrote a book whining about how my young children made my life hell. And yes, I've come on this very show many times and grumbled about how hard my life with my young children was. Well, I'd like to apologize. I was wrong, dead wrong. Having five young children was a beautiful thing. I know that now because I presently have five not young children and my life is absolutely horrible. <laughs> I remember thinking if we could just get these kids out of diapers, our lives will be so easy. <laughs> I was naive, arrogant, and yet offbeat good looking. I didn't know back then when a stranger would see me with my young kids and volunteer, you're gonna miss this. I thought they were weirdos with no boundaries. I didn't realize that stranger was bestowing a warning upon me that every adorable toddler eventually transforms into a tormenting teen, executing the karmic revenge of our own parents. I'm glad I didn't know every school morning with not young children would feel like a theatrical recreation of the fall of Saigon. It's for the best that I didn't realize that the smell of a full diaper was sweet compared to the odor of a teenage boy's anything. I guess my message to the parents of young children is this. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. Anyway, have a nice Sunday. What happens if you ever need to miss work for a long period of time? Why would I miss work? I don't know. You miss spraining your ankle? Throw out your back? Get hit by a school bus. Or a regular bus. Get kicked by a horse. Fall off a ladder. Bathtub mishap. Polio. Boating accident. Stuck by a fork. Rabies. Well, scurvy. Talk to us about disability income insurance today. Feel comfortable about tomorrow. Mass Mutual. Hey, the friends again, Billy. I like to keep my enemies close. Guys, excuse me. I didn't quite get that. I'm hard hearing. Oh, hey, don't forget about the tense music, too. What did you say, tense? I say suspense. Aren't they the same thing? Can we move on, guys? Please. Like so? Turn on subtitles. And dim the lights. Okay, dim the lights. When they're sick, they get comfortable anywhere and spread germs everywhere. Wherever they rest, protection. Nothing kills more viruses, including the COVID-19 virus, on more surfaces than Lysol disinfectant spray. Lysol, what it takes to protect. There is nothing like dairy milk. Stop trying to replace it. It's not going to happen. Line IQ technology. It loads the line automatically and keeps the line extended to make.
maintain full trimming power. It's the number one rated brand in cordless outdoor power. Exclusively Lowe's Ace and Eagle authorized dealers. Why did dermatologists choose Dove? The Dove Beauty Bar is gentle, not only cleans, hydrates my skin. As a dermatologist, I want what's best for our skin. With one quarter moisturizing cream, Dove is the number one bar dermatologists use at home. There'll be plenty of bling on the red carpet tonight. But if you want to see some real gems, Faith Saley says, right this way. Downstairs from the T-Rex and just past the giant whale, there are some rock stars waiting at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. People get in here and they're agog for obvious reasons. Ellen Futter is president of the museum, where the newly reopened Mignone Halls of Gems and Minerals invite visitors to find wonder set in stone. They go over that geode, all 13 feet of it, and they go, wow. Indeed, this 12,000-pound geode, one of the largest on the planet, comes from the Earth, but looks out of this world. So this is the Amethyst Galaxy. George Harlow is the curator of the gallery, which has been closed for renovations and redesign since 2017. The crystals form relatively quickly, probably in a matter of tens or hundreds of years. To change the color of the crystals that were there once colorless, and now they're this purple color that took millions and millions of years. Millions of years is a blink of an eye in geology. When you're talking minerals, you're talking billions of years, like all the way back to the beginning. So after the Big Bang, big stars had blown up, and there was the soup of elements necessary to start making minerals had occurred, and one of the first ones to form was diamond. Diamonds were one of the first minerals to occur in the universe. 14 billion years later, there are over 5,000 minerals on Earth, 10 times as many as anywhere else in the solar system. We're a lucky, shiny planet, especially when you gaze upon our gems. A gem is, simply put, a mineral that's been polished and cut for an adoring audience. Is this the room that the people flock to? This is like the, the superstars of minerals. It's always been the most popular place in this group of halls. For sure, it's dazzling, you know, it's bling bling. That bling bling attracted some thieves to the old hall back in 1964 in an infamous heist led by a Florida man named Jack Murphy. I am an avid museum goer. The media nicknamed him Murph the Surf and marveled at how he and his cronies managed to steal the precious star of India. The 563 carat sapphire is now safely back in a sealed case enthralling visitors. So if we put a light on there, oh we, can make, we can make the star move. Do you own 